0: Welcome to Hidden in Plain Sight, the HIPS podcast looking at the mysterious disappearance of Elizabethan dramatist Christopher Marlowe. I'm Julian, your host, and exploring this with me is Peter Hodges, himself a dramatist, scholar, and author of Marlowe's Complaint, A Unique History of the Subject. Together we are investigating the report of his death in Datford in May 1593 and we hypothesize that he did not die but instead escaped to the continent with the help of some of the most powerful people in England. In this episode we will look more closely at the reasons why Marlowe's life was in danger, who had a motive to do him harm and who could have helped him escape. Hello, Peter. Welcome to episode four. Hello, Julian.
1: Good to be with you.
0: Peter, in the previous episode, you speculated a great deal about the motives of people like the Earl of Essex, the Lord Burley, and even the Earl of Southampton, with regard to the competition between Burley and Essex over their influence at court and with the Queen. I imagine that a host of doubters will fixate on this speculation and discount your version of events as a result. What do you have to say to them?
1: Well, first of all, we are not speculating about any of the events, the things that actually happened. We are investigating these events in order to understand why they happened. What we are not doing is putting someone in the room who was never in the room at all. To say someone is present when there is no evidence for that is simply wishful thinking. What we are trying to do is find the motive for what actually occurred, and to do that, we have to ask the age-old question, cui bono, who benefits? What we are not doing is inventing an alternate reality where people who were not present had an effect on those who were. When we investigate the interaction between Burley, Essex, and Southampton, we also Need to keep in mind what happened afterward. For instance, did Southampton marry Burley's granddaughter? The answer is no. In fact, he married Elizabeth Vernon, the Earl of Essex's niece. Did Burley drop his claim to Southampton's loyalty? The answer to that is also no. In fact, he demanded 5,000 pounds in compensation for his refusal of Burley's marriage proposal. 5,000 pounds is the same amount that Francis Walsingham had accrued in debt from his intelligence operation. So when it comes to Marlowe, it seems to me that it was Essex who benefited the most from his disappearance. Now, at the end of the day, a lot of this is secondary to the question of whether or not Marlowe survived the incident at Deptford. What we are discussing now is the question of who had a motive to put him in danger. Some people think it was Whitgift, but Whitgift was not pursuing Marlowe until after the Dutch libel appeared. So the question becomes, who incited the libel, which so clearly implicated Marlowe? Who would have had a motive? To me, Essex stands out As the person who had just that, in addition to which he had the means, he had the opportunity. I don't know of anyone else who has been suggested.
0: Okay, you know, one thing bothers me about all of this. I can understand that Essex would want to prevent the marriage between Elizabeth de Vere and Southampton, because that would put Burley in control of a huge fortune, I mean, even larger than Essex's own. And you say that Marlowe was writing poems in support of Burley as gifts to Southampton to convince him to marry Elizabeth de Vere. But how would Essex know
1: about this? Well, I have to assume he would have seen the first 17 poems and he would have seen Clapham's Narcissus because Southampton was a good friend and he would have shown them to him. After that, the idea would be to keep tabs on Burley to see if he had any other gifts up his sleeve. Essex had a whole network of spies by then. It would not have been difficult to keep an eye on what was being published. The printers were registered, and there are only so many of them, so you could have a couple of people whose task it was simply to keep an eye on what got registered with the stationer's company.
0: But what about private correspondence.
1: That's more difficult, but it's not impossible. I'm sure that if Marlowe was working on a poem, there would be people who would know about it. But as it happens, in April 1593, a poem was registered for printing which didn't have an author's name attached to it. It was titled Venus and Adonis. It's on a classical subject exploring the fragility of young love, and warns against selfishness, implying that marriage is more enduring. If somebody with watchful eyes got a look at some part of the manuscript and thought he recognized the hand, well, okay, that's the job he's been hired to do. In the absence of any other known poet who authored translations of Ovid, it would be no great leap to assume that this unattributed poem was written by Marlowe and was being kept secret because it was supposed to be a surprise gift for the Earl of Southampton, which, in fact, it was. The next thing you know, the Dutch church libel suddenly appears, accusing Marlowe of sedition and putting him in danger with Witgift. So you basically think Essex
0: wrote the Dutch church libel.
1: I think he had one of his men do it, a man named Robert Chumley. He worked for Essex. According to Charles Nickel, who worked this all out in his book, The Reckoning, Chumley probably wrote the Dutch church libel under Essex instructions, and then dictated a draft of the accusation that Richard Baines later signed while he was in jail. The draft accusation is known today as Chumley's Remembrances. A fourth man, Thomas Drury, apparently recorded both Chumley's Remembrances and the Baines note, which got Marlowe into real trouble.
0: So Drury was working for Essex?
1: Not according to Nickel. He and Chumley worked together on any number of scams, but at the time... Drury was working for Robert Cecil, Burley's son. Chumley and Drury both landed in jail afterwards. From jail, Drury wrote a letter to Cecil claiming that if he could secretly confer with him, he could expose diverse secrets. The next thing you know, Essex got Chumley out, and apparently Burley sprung Drury buying his silence and using him as a courier in the Low Countries. So what you have is an odd conspiracy of Essex men, Chumley and Skeers, and Burley's people, Polly and Drury and Mrs. Bull, and Freiser, who is Walsingham's man, all working to get Marlowe safely out of Deptford because Whitgift wanted him prosecuted and hung. And you don't think Essex
0: wanted him dead as well?
1: Probably not. Essex didn't need the blood on his hands. He had disgraced Marlowe. That was enough. Thanks to Essex, Marlowe got into trouble, and then Archbishop Whitgift had him put on notice. You can imagine all these men staring across the Privy Council table at each other with Whitgift all of a sudden demanding Marlowe's neck. He already had half a dozen men hanged or imprisoned over the Marprelate scandal. Marlowe's head would be the cherry on top of it, so to speak.
0: Hmm. But what about the Queen herself?
1: I'm sure they cleared Marlowe's escape with her. Danby was her coroner, and he would only have jurisdiction if the murder scene was within that 12-mile radius of the Queen. I suppose if she'd been further away from Deptford at that time... Burley would have had to find a different location for the staged escape. He had a few to choose from, but it turned out Deptford was as good as any. Let's
0: talk about Thomas Walsingham. I suppose being a patron of the arts meant that he came into contact with other writers and poets. What was his relationship to Marlowe and Why would he be willing to take such a great risk in helping him?
1: Thomas was quite friendly with Tom Watson, who was a poet and also a friend of Marlowe's. The three of them were very close. Watson, I mentioned before, defended Marlowe in a street fight that ended with Watson killing William Bradley. Watson and Walsingham had traveled in France together and both worked for Sir Francis, as did Marlowe. Watson was a noted poet, and I think he helped Marlowe with plots for a number of the plays early on. All this was before Walsingham came into his property. Then Watson apparently died in the fall of 1592.
0: Yeah, you see, that's very interesting for me. With Watson dead, Thomas would naturally want to protect Marlowe if he could, but What if he couldn't or didn't? What if he turned on Marlowe instead? I mean, some people believe he did.
1: That's one of the big questions. A lot of people who are on the traditional side of the fence looking at Deptford and asking themselves, who's got a reason to try and keep Marlowe alive? And looking at Thomas Walsingham being associated with this by way of the intelligence service and so forth, they could in their minds make just as good a case that Walsingham would have wanted Marlowe dead and that he would have brought these people, Polly, Freiser, and Skeers there for that purpose. Now, I think that sort of runs contrary to good sense. The idea that he's been working with Marlowe for seven or eight years by then, starting when Marlowe was at Cambridge, and using him as a tutor for Arbella Stewart and keeping watch on Lord Strange... And suddenly Marlowe is attacked by a small group of people accusing him of atheism? As if he hasn't been attacked by jealous people before? Is that enough for Walsingham to suddenly turn on him and say, Okay, let's just eliminate him? That just doesn't make any sense to me. Walsingham must know that Burley has been commissioning poems from Marlowe in hopes of convincing Southampton to marry. He's been working with Burley all throughout. So now Burley is going to turn on Marlowe too? That doesn't make any sense. I don't think either of them betrayed Marlowe. Let me throw something out there. Do
0: you think Thomas Walsingham might have been in love with Marlowe?
1: Well, non-traditional people who believe Marlowe survived think that Walsingham and Marlowe were lovers. It's very hard to discourage them from that thought, because when Baines accused Marlowe of atheism, he also claimed that he loved boys. There's an obvious difference between homosexuality and pederasty, but for some reason, Marlowe gets remembered as a homosexual. Traditionally, on both sides of the debate, there's always been this suspicion that Marlowe was homosexual, and this was also part of the reason why he was so conveniently eliminated. So non-traditional people believe that Walsingham couldn't bear to part with his lover, and therefore staged this event, which made it look like Marlowe was dead, and then they got him out of town.
0: Do I detect some
1: skepticism there, Peter? Well, I don't hold with any of that. I I think Walsingham cared a great deal about Marlowe for all sorts of reasons. Maybe he was in love with Marlowe. Maybe not. We have evidence from Watson that he and Walsingham were intimate at some point. Watson dedicated a poem to Sir Francis Walsingham as a memorial And in the dedication, he wrote about the good old days with Tom in Paris, and then complained as if to say, you're not as much fun now as you were then. So I think there was a relationship of some kind between Walsingham and Watson. Watson advertised himself in his own poetry as a Ganymede, which was slang for homosexual, and Thomas Nash even referred to him as such. So I I think Watson was probably gay, and probably, if he's to be credited, had some kind of gay relationship with Thomas Walsingham. And whether or not that was a youthful fling or something more lasting, the fact of the matter is is that by the time we get to Deptford, Tom Watson was dead, or at least reputed to be. So who can say where things actually stood in May of 1593? Maybe Walsingham dabbled in that direction before he married Lady Audrey. Maybe he continued to. The only people accusing Marlowe of sexual deviancy were his enemies, people like Baines, who just as easily could have been projecting his own unrequited desire. Marlowe's friends don't verify any of that. So I don't go there. I don't think you have to. Marlowe and Walsingham were very, very good friends. That's all you have to know.
0: So, if we surmise that Marlowe was smuggled out of England on that fateful night, where do you think he might have gone? Thomas Kidd said he planned to go to Scotland.
1: That would be a very difficult journey overland, and people could be looking for him. I don't think it's likely. The simplest place for him to go would be straight to Flushing in Flanders. The Muscovy Company had docks over there. The English had an installation over there. Robert Sidney, Philip and Mary's younger brother, was in charge of the garrison over there. It would have been a very simple matter to just get Marlow across the channel and then figure out what to do next. I don't think that there needed to be a larger plan at that moment in time. There really wasn't time to develop one. The people who were in the room at Deptford were all people who were experienced in that type of work. The situation was ideal for that kind of thing. They needed to come up with a a story to cover the escape in the coroner's report, and all the pieces fit together very nicely. They provide a much better explanation for all of these events than the explanation that are made by so many others who want Marlowe jammed up there. Okay, so let's go with your
0: theory that Marlowe was smuggled out of England to Flushing, or as we now know it, Vlissingen, in Belgium. I suppose he would want to inform Thomas Walsingham and the Lord Burley and anybody else connected to this whole incident that he arrived safely and perhaps could continue doing his intelligence work as usual.
1: Yes, I think that seems most likely place to go where there are connections with people who knew Marlowe, who are also reporting back to Burley in an ordinary fashion and would have couriers at the ready for the purpose of carrying correspondence back and forth.
0: So then let me ask you, have you looked into the possibility that there might be Correspondence from Christopher Marlowe that is still preserved, possibly mixed in with other documents, just as the coroner's
1: report was mislaid. Oh, oh, yes. I spent a lot of time looking for it, in fact. Oh, really? Sure. I looked all over. I have copies of the correspondence of Simeon Fox, an agent for Robert Cecil. He was living in Venice in the early 1600s and he devised a special way of folding a letter that would let you know if anyone had opened it. There were a lot of different ways in which members of the government corresponded. There's are certainly plain letters stating their purpose. You could have personal correspondence. You could have state correspondence, which was under seal. A lot of that we still have at the British Library. There would be other types of correspondence that would be in code. Some of it was very sophisticated stuff. Thomas Phillips was a Codemaster who worked for both Burley and Essex and had a hand in decoding the Babington correspondence. But there were also more ordinary ways of communicating. You could, you could just smuggle something that looked innocuous in someone else's correspondence. We don't have all of the letters that passed between Robert Sidney and Lord Burley. In fact, for a certain period of time, we don't even have the records of the Privy Council. At a very critical point... Of time, between 1594 and 1596, we don't have records of the meetings with the Privy Council. So imagine you're trying to construct the history of England without that. But we could be sure there was correspondence, because eh, otherwise, how else could they maintain their business? There was money that traveled back and forth in order to sustain the garrison. Of all the things that might have been possible to do... Robert Sidney was also a person who dabbled in poetry. His sister was a notable poet and patron of Marlowe's theater company, Pembroke's Men. Robert's older brother, Philip was a world-famous poet at the time. Even though he died in 1586, his work had recently been republished. Arcadia had come out under Lady Pembroke's own imprimatur. If Robert Sidney wanted to send a poem along with the rest of his correspondence, it would go pretty much unnoticed. If anybody got their hands on it, it would just be a poem. On the other hand, if you were Christopher Marlowe and you wanted to send something back that no one would pay attention to except for the person to whom it was specifically addressed, that would be a pretty good gambit. You could write your thoughts poetically and slip it in between a couple of Robert's poems, You could communicate that you're safe. And in that way, you could also talk to the people that are concerned with your future and about your fears for your future and complain if you chose to about how long it's taking them to work out what they're going to do with you. All of those things could be included and other stuff, very personal stuff in poems that would look and sound to the idle reader as just another poem. So when we try to figure out whether or not Marlowe survived, we can try and look for correspondence, but we won't find letters signed Christopher Marlowe. What we will find are poems.
0: Wow. Are you serious here? What you're saying is that instead of writing straightforward letters, you're suggesting that Christopher Marlowe was writing in poem form, like a code, but
1: actually a poem. I know, it's a crazy thought. took me a long time to come around to this notion because I went through all the fits and starts of trying to track down what I thought must be there. There must be correspondence with this man if he survived. There's got to be something. There's got to be some reference to where he was or what he was doing. There's got to be. I have spent time in the British Library and the public records office, and I've had some assistance in this, but it's a dry hole everywhere I looked. All the correspondence that exists for all of these people in, in intelligence and whatnot. We have plenty of examples of it, but there isn't anything that gives us a report by Christopher Marlowe stuck in Flushing or traveling through Italy, reporting back on some interesting sights and sounds for people back home to flavor their knowledge of foreign countries, which they could then use in statecraft. We don't have anything like that. It's pretty frustrating. But what we do have, and it's important to understand that when we finally find something we can put our finger on, it's not something that happens immediately after 1593. It actually takes a while before all these pieces of correspondence give us enough information that we can figure out separate individuals who are walking and talking at the same time five years later in 1598. we can identify that would have been important to our friend, Christopher Marlowe. If he's writing about them, then yeah, he's alive.
0: (laughs) Why do I get the feeling you've been leading us up to this point all along? Are you going to tell me that you have copies of this correspondence? Of course I do. I can even read it to you. (laughs) Oh, my God. Goodness, if that isn't a cliffhanger, then I don't know what is. Unfortunately, dear listeners, we have maxed our time for this episode. If you want to hear Peter explain how he can claim to have found the secret correspondence of Christopher Marlowe, and perhaps even read some of that out, tune in to our next episode of Hidden in Plain Sight.
1: Those of you who want to jump ahead, you would do well to pick up a copy of Marlowe's Complaint, the book that reveals the rest of this incredible and fascinating story. You can check out Chapter One online for free. It's a fun read, and I highly recommend it, of course. But then I wrote it.